We have a new show at Turpentine that's been in the works for a long time, Company Breakdowns. We dive into S1s and Series B and Beyond companies, interviewing founders and investors to break down the companies. First episode is on Rubrik, which IPO'd this week. Upcoming episodes cover Reddit, Databricks, and more. Subscribe at the link in the description or search for Company Breakdowns on YouTube or in the podcast platform of your choice. Welcome to Live Players, where political scientists and strategists Sam Oberia and I discuss the key individuals with the power to alter our current society. Every week, we provide analysis of the news and case studies of live players as well as key institutions and technologies that make up the global power landscape. Let's dive in. So, Samo, your most recent Bismarck brief post was on the company AstraZeneca and how it shows why pharmaceutical companies don't innovate. Why don't you unpack what you talked about in the piece? I think the pharmaceutical industry is an absolute economic giant. And it's an economic giant from which we would expect rapid innovation. We're talking about companies that are worth hundreds of millions of dollars and an industry that's measured in trillions of dollars. A lot of the CEOs administering these large organizations are very competent, many highly educated, very intelligent people uh, work in these organizations that sometimes number in the thousands, yet their output in terms of revolutionary medicine or extending human lifespan is frankly unimpressive. So for AstraZeneca itself, it is a $210 billion company. That's its market capitalization as of January of 2024. It's alongside Pfizer, Moderna, and Johnson and Johnson, one of the few pharmaceutical companies that succeeded in rapidly developing and distributing vaccines for COVID-19. Now, this was after, you know, nearly a decade of stagnation and decline. Its total revenue basically doubled from 2018 uh, to 2022. It went from just $20 billion to $45 billion. And, you know, the CEO of the company, uh, Pascal Suryot, uh, he's a French CEO. He has to be credited. This is like actually a very good way to run a business. Now, having said that, not all businesses necessarily have an incentive to innovate. Uh, modern pharmaceutical giants, basically, in my opinion, and in the opinion of many other observers, have a kind of like, you know, uh, strategy where they simply make lots and lots of bets on lots and lots of compounds. The organization itself is not trying to reach any deep understanding of any given part of biochemistry or any particular, um, you know, domain of human biology. All they're looking for is new patentable compounds. When you have a new patentable compound, uh, and you know, it doesn't necessarily even need to be much better than any existing drug. You have kind of a 10 year window with which you can manufacture it and produce a profit. So again, one of the, you know, reasons the revenue of AstraZeneca doubled, uh, was again, this like unique window, this unique financial windfall partially driven by COVID-19. As soon as you have 
this window of this new drug that you've developed, or in that case, a new vaccine, since you have this window of kind of a government-granted monopoly run out, they're so-called generics, so companies that will make generic uh, copies and undercut whatever new compound you develop. Uh, they'll make it much more cheaply, efficiently. These companies don't field real R&D divisions. So the result of this is that in terms of running a large corporation where the CEOs don't have any particular deep biological, scientific, or other expertise, you end up with this sort of lottery ticket buying approach. And I actually think that that's bad science at the end of the day. And I think that alternative companies, different companies, uh, where unfortunately Novo Nordisk, uh, this is the company that developed Ozempic, is an exception to the industry, not the rule, right? No, Nordisk basically is a company that is focused on insulin and insulin-related drugs for decades. They have deep expertise basically at all levels of the company. So it means that the managers, to some extent at least, actually understand the science. And, you know, you can be an excellent CEO, but unless you have some grounding in whatever the basics are of what you're doing, well, you can't really run a first principles oriented company. You can't even run a company that preserves a deep tradition of knowledge. Like a deep tradition of knowledge is actually kind of expensive. Everyone knows that there are technical breakthroughs that say come out of a company like, I don't know, Boston Dynamics. But if you look at the spreadsheet, a company like Boston Dynamics and Robotics, isn't that profitable. And if you look at the spreadsheets for Novo Nordisk, it certainly did okay. But if you were to rationalize its production, you would basically go in, buy it, and kind of fire all the scientists that really, really know diabetes and really, really know uh, what the effects are of different diabetes drugs. And it was precisely this deep tradition that specialized in that that kind of gave Ozempic, which, um, you know, for listeners and viewers who don't yet know, is a drug that seems to be a very promising weight loss medication. Now, it has side effects, but I'm going to note that in most of the developed world, extreme obesity has far worse side effects statistically. And, and so what you're saying here is we here have a model that the rest of the industry or ecosystem or, or world should, should learn from. And that there are certain things that have been achieved here that are rec replicable. And the success demonstrates the, the failure otherwise. Is, is that uh, accurate? Well, I'm saying in a very deep way, uh, there's an important disconnect between the profitability of a major pharmaceutical company and its ability to innovate, right? Both Novo Nordisk and AstraZeneca are profitable pharmaceutical companies. AstraZeneca is a typical one where it sort of just finds new compounds, uh, uses the legal patent to extract profits, and then kind of drops the drug as soon as it can be caught up by companies without R&D divisions. So on paper, this is very economically efficient, just it's bad science. And Novo Nordisk, as a company, doesn't have this huge portfolio of drugs. It has a rare diseases division, sure, but the basics of it is it's a company dedicated to understanding the biology of diabetes. And that happens to be closely related biologically, not in market segment, but just like in physical reality 
uh, with obesity. So that kind of company deeply specialized in a branch of human knowledge and investing heavily in R&D, even at the expense of profit margins and keeping on scientists for decades, right? And even having scientists within the company be promoted to manager roles, that's the kind of company that drives scientific innovation. And I think that there has been essentially a push uh, in the pharmaceutical industry, maybe not even a push, maybe a better term is a pull over many, many decades of what every step along the way is like a rational economic decision that has actually made the industry as a whole much less scientifically productive. And because it's much less scientifically productive, it has made its social utility much lower. So in other words, I think the positive externalities of the pharmaceutical industry have been going down over time because the best thing is a slightly different uh, compound that's patentable and that you enjoy a legal monopoly on for 10 years. And it's actually worse business to do what Nova Nordisk has done. So we have a market failure here. What, what is the right way of thinking about why does this problem exist? I think that in a way it can be seen as a market failure. In another way, you could um, perhaps argue that uh, the patent system as a whole uh, should be stronger, or you could argue that it should be uh, weaker, right? For example, you could have a market where uh, the equivalent of the FDA only checks whether uh, a substance is toxic or harmful, right? And basically doesn't try to establish efficacy. Uh, in that view, one could maybe expect that the free demand and uh, supply and demand would eventually result in the more innovative drugs outselling the less innovative ones. I do, however, think that while that would be an improvement over this excessive regulatory burden, which in practice is then a barrier to entry so that it takes, you know, I can't easily create a $10 million startup and get my drug patented, even if I know exactly how to make the drug work because the barrier to entry is so high and it's so expensive, right? Now, the big pharmaceutical companies, th there's an aspect of them that you could consider startup-like, which is that you have a labs housed in a pharmaceutical corporation, and then the pharmaceutical corporations kind of trade around labs and facilities through mergers and acquisitions uh, in a way that's almost like, I don't know, diversifying your portfolio. So one way to think of the pharmaceutical companies is that they've become less firms and more this like weird financial construct that owns dozens or hundreds of facilities and teams around the world. Uh, but I personally think that science is deeply uncertain. And unless you have an organizational commitment, right, to maintaining a particular uh, tradition of excellence and knowledge, just scientific excellence and knowledge over decades, uh, actually, there's very little probability that you'll end up producing significant breakthroughs. I think people still do it, but I really think the world of firms rather than the world of weird patent holding companies, right? Uh, or, you know, we could joke and call them patent hedge funds, right? Maybe pharmaceutical giants are kind of like patent hedge funds, actually. And they're like, oh, you know, I'm going to buy this patent and sell this one and, you know, rebalance my portfolio in these ways. Um, maybe those aren't great companies. And I think part of the 
failure here. It's not even necessarily a concrete regulatory tweak or concrete market incentives. I think part of the failure is uh, basically a lack of understanding in the industry as to what drives long-term innovation. Uh, so in other words, I think that if you approached running a pharmaceutical company the way I don't know, Jeff Bezos approached running Amazon, in the very long run, I actually think you'd make more money. Remind me, like, how big a business would curing obesity be if that worked? Or even just eliminating extreme medical obesity, even if it's not safe enough to use it for people in uh, everyday circumstances, right? If it, maybe it's too dangerous for me losing 10 pounds or even for someone losing 50 pounds, but I guarantee you there are now millions of patients who really need to lose 100 or 150 pounds and their life kind of depends on it, right? And they are incurring immense medical expenses. So really we're talking about a market that for Novo Nordisk in the long run might be hundreds of millions. And then, of course, eventually the generics catch up, sure. But in the massive obesity business, right, of the future, let's say, or the massive curing obesity business of the future, you're still going to be the company with the deepest tradition of knowledge. So you're still going to be the company that a rational investor, if they're thinking long term, will be like, well, if there are future breakthroughs in this sector, this company is by far the likeliest to do it. So it's a, a really, I, I would view this as almost a company supply problem. I think that if we built more such institutions, if there wasn't an undersupply of people creating long-term oriented, for-profit, but still deeply first scientifically and first principles minded companies, if there wasn't a supply problem of people coming into the market and creating such organizations, I really don't think the markets would end up penalizing them, actually. I think it's more like we are economizing on a failure of social technology and human capital and the market's kind of solving for that constraint. But there's some outside of market interventions that would loosen the constraint. And then the market would, of course, reward those things as well. Yeah. So... It's the opposite of what I suggested, which is it's not a market failure. It's a regulatory failure. It's because we have a distorted market. It's encouraging companies to do the opposite of what we want. Well, to some extent, yes, regulatory. Um, but I also am trying to sort of like bust open this dichotomy by suggesting that, hey, maybe they're just not enough people who understand how science really works, partially because academia is broken, but partially because corporate R&D has become broken. And because we misunderstand how R&D works, all we can see is the short-term economic indicators of a company. You know, we see an AstraZeneca and we figure out how to, in a very responsible, in a way economically sensible way, double its revenue, let's say, or like, you know, double its value market cap, right? Even if in the process, we don't develop its scientific potential at all. So I think almost there's like a social technology failure where if we did have a better, deeper understanding of how science works, what it takes to house a scientific institution without it becoming bloated, right? And still having like this, this excellence. I think if we had that, these new companies would over a few decades outcompete these ailing dead player pharmaceutical giants. Maybe Eric, the best way to put it is we don't have enough scientifically minded 
and ambitious founders. How do we get more scientifically minded founders? You mentioned academia is broken. You mentioned corporate R&D is broken. Maybe flesh out what's an idea or a couple ideas for how to make it better so we can get more scientifically minded founders. I think that one of the key expectations should be um, that labs around the world that are funded from uh, basically public funding have a direct commercialization clause included in there. And that we make it easy for people to go from a government-funded lab with government-funded research and whether or not this lab is housed in a university or a national health institute or a research organization or honestly, even the defense sector, right? And make it easier for people uh, to exit that basically publicly funded initial scientific results we should actually encourage the scientists in question to go out and create for-profit companies commercializing it. Now you might say, wait, why should public dollars go for private benefit? I actually think there's a deeply moral argument to be made here. The deeply moral argument is, hey, look, this was the scientist's idea in the first place. Isn't it better that the scientist profits rather than this stuff is put out in the open? But there's more importantly, an economic reason for this. Um, small countries such as Israel in the defense sector have understood this for decades. When you look at things like Israel's unit 8,200, right, 8,200, they basically understand that they have a tiny defense sector. Uh, they need to have world-class cyber warfare technology because of the unique security challenges of that country. So they basically encourage uh, young people to go solve Israeli defense problems with significant funding and with the authority to do so, and then spin out companies that service an international market. So if this logic applies to defense, why doesn't it apply to general science? I think that, yes, public funds should be used to subsidize science, and they should reward the extremely talented individuals who can do science and who can uh, in themselves and in their immediate students maintain traditions of knowledge. So I think if, I don't know, the French government sought out the 50 most talented biochemists, biologists, and doctors every year from each crop of French students, if they did that and gave each of them uh, basically a four-year stipend to work at a lab and the right to commercialize any breakthroughs happening in their lab specifically, oh, wow, that could make France a, a pharmaceutical superpower in decades, right? It would take 20, 30 years. That sounds long, but that's barely one generation. Fascinating. I, I, I was once in a conversation with Mark Andreessen and Eric Weinstein, and they were talking about whether academic research should be commercialized more in terms of turn more into venture-backed startups and just make it, you know, easier for that to happen. I'm very interested which positions uh, they represented in that discussion. So uh, perhaps not surprisingly, uh, Mark Andreessen was for more venture-backed startups emerging out of uh, academic research, and Eric Weinstein was skeptical of that. He, he was saying, hey, that's not going to solve the real problem, or these scientists don't necessarily want to be founders. I think he was concerned about this idea that science is only valuable to the extent that it could be directly commercialized. I think that the endeavor itself has some inherent value. And the way I would see this is not a call for a reduction in science funding, 
about a shift in the incentives of science funding. And I think at least a portion of it could basically pay for itself. Because at the end of the day, once you spin off these new companies, they presumably produce tax revenue and presumably you can invest that back into this program, generating the competition for the companies. Something that I note, the current pharmaceutical industry will not do on its own. One of the interesting things that happens with extremely consolidated companies is that CEOs start thinking of themselves less as the CEO of a particular company and more as a CEO in a very small group of possible CEOs of an industry. So in other words, they start working for the pharmaceutical industry and you start having phenomena where like the CEO salaries of very different pharmaceutical companies all end up being basically the same. Everyone knows each other. It's like 50 to 100 people that get to decide who's the CEO of a major pharmaceutical company. And among those, there are 20 to 30 that happen to be CEOs at one time or another. So you're more interested in figuring out what do I look like as a CEO when I exit this company rather than how's this company doing in the long run or even did we cure any major diseases during my time as CEO of this company? Fascinating. I want to go deeper into this experiment of, let's say we could wave a wand and change anything about how research is done, about how corporate R&D is done, about how the, the regulatory environment with, with the FDA uh, operates. We've identified some, some ideas, some of the problems, some, some proposals. Let's flesh out a broader set of proposals that we might have if we can wave a wand and change anything about the environment in which we operate in here. I would require, perhaps by law, but even if it's not required by law, it would still be a very good idea to have many of the board members, possibly as many as half of the board members of any major pharmaceutical company have to be scientific advisors. I think that in itself massively changes incentives. Again, I'm going to use Novo Nordisk as the exception that proves the rule, which is why we should expect, and I actually personally expect new uh, medical innovations to come from this company in the future of Basically, the board um, of the Novo Nordisk Foundation, it has nine members, and then there are three employee elected representatives. Of the six appointed members, four are scientists by career or training, three are scientific professors, and two are professors at the University of Copenhagen. So really, you have this situation where of six appointed members, four of them actually understand real science. It's not just trust the science as a kind of like pseudo-religious mantra. It's people who understand the underlying scientific arguments. Why is this important? It's important if you want your company to produce scientific innovations. And I think the spiritual quest of science, to harken back a little bit to your point about Eric Weinstein, I think it is correct that there's a deep social value to understanding the universe, even if it doesn't produce commercializable benefit. However, however, we already are giving vast uh, economic benefits and legal privileges to large pharmaceutical companies. So to optimize those companies to do better science, I don't think that really detracts from the university system as such. It's not scrapping the university system. 
but it's like pushing it to be, uh, to actually produce the positive externalities for which we've given these large companies that are privileges. Like, for example, what is the point of the 10 year window in which you can commercialize an advancement, a medical advancement, uh, such as a new drug, a slightly different molecule, if all that is used for is to pump the bags and produce hundreds of billions of dollars valuation and tens of billions in revenue and the drugs they produce are underwhelming. Maybe we should just be rid of them. Maybe we should just have generics companies and uh, university funded labs. Maybe that would be better, right? So it's, it's really, there is already a area of commercialized science. And I think in that area, both commerce and science would benefit from a rigorous analysis of what produces breakthroughs. And then the policies, laws, and regulations, or even just the culture and the aspiration of the managers uh, should come to reflect those insights. And the when people talk about big pharma and the sort of regulatory capture problems or just general corruption problems, why don't you say more about what exactly they're talking about and any ideas come to mind as a, how to mitigate this or redirect it? Well, you know, I think there's something very primal and deep in human nature about not wishing to be poisoned. So a lot of the time when people talk about corruption, they're not even talking about white collar crime. They're talking about stuff like side effects of various drugs hushed or pushed under the table, uh, patents for drugs that potentially are excellent drugs not being released to the public because it undercuts, say, control of a molecule or a patent on a molecule that you can commercialize. So if you imagine your large pharmaceutical company and you discover actually in your research that the best way to treat a drug is an existing generic drug. And the second best way to treat a drug is a new molecule that you've patented. Well, which one are you going to promote, right? And this in a very local sense is following a profit motive, right? So that is the profit motive in action. Uh, we can't paper over that. We can't pretend it's not. However, it feels wrong to people. And I think it's because our moral intuitions around food, medicine are always a little bit paranoid, which makes sense for nearly all of human history, eating the wrong thing or treating a disease the wrong way gets you killed. And honestly, treating a disease incorrectly is one of the likeliest things to get you killed today. I think iatrogenic deaths are caused by a variety of factors. Iatrogenic means, you know, caused by doctors, caused by treatment, caused by mistreatment. Um, they come from a variety of causes, but I think if you bunch them together, depending on country, developed country, they are third or fourth on the likeliest cause of death. So a lot of wealth gets wasted that way and a lot of human misery results from mistreatment. So it of course makes sense that we as a population want the medical system to operate on something more than just immediate economic efficiency, right? And I think a long-term perspective to economic efficiency corrects for a lot of those problems. So I think if as a CEO of a company, you assume, hey, I'm not a pharma exec. I'm actually a Novo Nordisk exec, or maybe I'm an Astra exec or a Zeneca exec. AstraZeneca, of course, used to be two companies that merged, a Swedish company and a UK company. 
in that case, you might be thinking, well, you know, do we open up a whole new field of science? Because 30 to 40 years in the future, our competition will inevitably catch up to whatever advances we have. We actually want to build up a long-term strategic advantage over our competitors based on a unique tradition of knowledge, a unique tradition of medical knowledge, of chemical knowledge, uh, of pharmaceutical advancement. That's the ideal of how a large company should work. Very few companies really live up to that social utility structure. But if you can achieve it, you're very hard to dislodge through market mechanisms. Like in the long run, the market will favor you, but can you survive that long, right? So I think today, if we were to undertake reform, perhaps pairing some ways in which make business a bit harder for these portfolio companies and make business a bit easier for would-be scientific startups, I think the combination of the two could result in a slow, almost generation-long transformation of this industry. And again, I'm hesitant to talk about details of corruption here because almost everything is legal and there is an unprincipled switching back that happens whenever we think about these topics where one moment we're analyzing something as a business and the next moment we're analyzing it as this uh, food and drug purity intuition that we all share. It's like, I think, a deep moral foundation in all cultures. Um, after all, you know, when medicine was still young in the classical Greek world, the oath to the god of medicine to do no harm, I think that made people trust doctors and want to hire doctors. So perhaps we should extend that culture in some way. Perhaps there should be a modification of the oath. And if you're a pharma exec or a pharma board member, you're actually supposed to recite that oath. And I know that this perhaps won't be necessarily something that my more libertarian friends will like because the sort of there's a way in which the profit motive is supposed to guard you against all sorts of dysfunction and introducing anything that's not it feels like it's inviting dysfunction. Um, but I really do think that a lot of these decisions and a lot of these aspirations, they have to include uh, a fuller logic to subsidize and help humans think in the long run. I don't think people are very good at thinking in the long run. And even when they do, the guarantees that they personally will benefit from it are very low, right? One of the advantages of a founder-run company and a founder-owned company is that after you do an amazing job of thinking long-term, uh, the board or shareholders are not going to pressure you uh, and push you out to replace you with someone that thinks quarter to quarter. Hey, everybody. Eric here with a word from our sponsors. Over 100 startups launched today. Do you know who they are? If you're not seeing interesting startups, none of your downstream processes matter. How you source deals at the earliest stages could be your most consequential investment. Harmonic is the most complete startup database, finding new companies as soon as they incorporate and tracking them through IPO. You can create a search tailored to your investment thesis. In one search, filter over company data, including venture stage, industry, and geography founders and operators' backgrounds, and traction metrics like headcount changes, social media audience, and web traffic growth. Importantly, Harmonic instantly surfaces warm connections to help you connect with founders. The results are delivered on autopilot, wherever you most need them. Over Slack, email, or via API, 
directly into your CRM, integrating seamlessly into your software stack. Learn why Craft, Bedrock, NEA, and hundreds more. Trust Harmonic's data by visiting harmonic.ai or use the link in the description. Make sure you mention our podcast, Turpentine VC, during your demo. I want to transition and go deeper into how the FDA operates. If we could wave a wand and change anything, let's say you were running the FDA, what approaches might you evolve? What might stay the same? Say more about this. I think that one of the most basic desirable outcomes is lowering the barrier to entry into the pharmaceutical industry. And I think that there is a point where as a society, we have to understand that this means that instead of having a few very profitable drugs that are sure to work in modest ways, we might actually want a great abundance of drugs, some of them wildly profitable, some of them barely profitable, with a wide variety of uh, profiles where some things are proven and other things are little more than snake oil. Consumers have a very difficult time deciding between these. That's true. But I do think that the alternative of less innovation is worse. So we should, to some extent, encourage novelty. So maybe there's a small element of the, hey, I patented a new molecule. I get to be the only one to make it without a fee for the next 10 years. There's a small amount of wisdom in that type of approach. But that approach has to be paired with it doesn't take billions of dollars and really long trials to get that to market, to allow you to sell it. So I think the FDA should plausibly do the following. And again, this is going to be perhaps a little bit of a controversial suggestion. I think the FDA should be saying yes to almost everything and then running funded studies, government funded studies into what happens when the drug is consumed in the general population and checking outcomes of people already taking this drug that passed a very thin initial approval, what its effects are in the short term and in the long run. And as soon as they detect like a statistical deviation in the part of the population that's taking a drug, let's say if people take a Zembic, right, and their livers were to fail 20 years later, that's a strong signal that would be picked up in the population. Now, of course, this wouldn't help the people who already took the drug that later was discovered uh, to be harmful. But, you know, I think that that approach would actually result in de facto, on average, better health. So, Again, I'm sort of like buyer beware. It's like, you know, the pharmaceutical company should tell you, hey, this is a new drug. It only has this super minimal testing. We don't know its long-term side effects, but did you know you can save $2,000 on your treatment plan? And, you know, we think it'll be about as good. I think that might actually be very good. I think it would result in lots of new pharmaceutical companies and result in an even greater selection option of drugs and it would result in many, many more drugs being tested. Granted, a lot of the testing would then happen on the general population rather than in closed clinical trials. Like I would shift the burden a little bit towards, hey, let's take this stuff and see what happens. But as long as the let's see what happens is not corrupted, as long as it's not covered up, and as long as people understand what kind of treatment they're signing up for and what the track record is of a treatment, 
well, I think society would massively benefit. Well, well articulated. Is, is there anything on this topic that we haven't yet gotten into that you think before we wrap is, is worth covering? I think the sheer scale of healthcare spending in the developed world needs to be kept in mind. Basically, the U.S. federal government spends an estimated 24% of its budget on health and Medicare, the, the uh, federal health insurance program. This makes healthcare the single largest expense ahead of Social Security at 22 or the military at 15%. According to the World Bank, U.S. expenditure on healthcare is the equivalent to 17% of GDP. All other developed countries spend similarly high rates, though less than the U.S. Uh, Germany comes in second, for example, at 12% of GDP. Even very minor, real scientific innovations in healthcare have the potential for vast savings. This is why I am in favor of Ozempic, despite it being not completely clear what the long-term side effects of its use are, because of those 24% of GDP or 12% of your Germany, right? How much of that is obesity related? We are literally talking about trillions of dollars. And of course, more is broken with the medical industry than just the development of this or that drug. But I really do believe that medical innovation could be a path to radically reducing these costs. I'm in favor of AI diagnosis. I'm in favor of consumer genomics. So AI diagnosis is we should uh, classify a doctor system and declare it a doctor equivalent. So if the AI system spits out a recipe, a prescription for a drug that you are now allowed to use, I don't think there should be a human doctor in the loop, for example. Um, I think that consumer-oriented uh, genomics should be allowed. So that is, uh, a provider should be able to give you back a full readout of your genome, and they should make it easy for you within their interface to see what scientific papers say about your genes. And they should be allowed to give you that knowledge, again, without a doctor in the loop, and so on and so on. We should be using technology to simplify, skip, and economize at just every level, at just every level of this. The extreme constriction of the medical industry and the doctor's guild has been a mistake. I think that we need to break open the medical guild as such. And the second mistake has been, I think the unwillingness to uh, acknowledge that countries and governments and society as, at large has benefits from deeply rooted scientific traditions that need to be housed either in a university or a single company, even if that company is hard to buy or hard to, you know, dislodge, or if it's not that profitable, let's say, right? So I really think we should move away from a managerial approach to big pharma and towards a founder or sole proprietor or even nonprofit foundation owned governments of these big pharma companies. And if the boards are governing them, right, either for profit or in the case of Nolan Nordisk, there's technically, I think, a, a foundation owning the company, uh, they should be scientific advisors, right? There should be a significant number of people who first and foremost care if something is true and only secondly, necessarily care what is the most profitable thing to do.
Is there a part of our economy where you would actually think that a, a managerial approach would, would work better? Or is it across, across the board? I think across the board, we gained a one-time efficiency gain in the 1980s and 90s um, where we pursued the managerial approach. There were lots and lots of very inefficient companies that the Carl Icons of the world could raid and radically restructure. I still think an external buyout by a single dude that knows what he's doing or gal can result in large savings, right? Elon Musk arguably did that recently with Twitter.com, now X.com. So it even works in software, let alone with something like General Motors or IBM or whatever, right? So I believe an approach of uh, founder-led takeovers is actually very good. I think that there are possibly still sectors of the economy where the sort of professional manager class approach could produce gains. Um, but I think we mostly pushed it to its limits. I'm hard pressed to think of where this would be like Eric aerospace. No, like the United launch Alliance, right? That's already a big push in that direction. I think the way I would put it is the managerial approach to running companies is a way to make dysfunctional debt player institutions a bit less dysfunctional. It's not a way to make them functional. So I think that we, we had a lot of dead wood in the seventies and eighties in the Western economic system. We cleared it up, which in a civilization or world historical sense, this was the big advantage of the Western world versus the Soviet Union. In 1977, they both had pretty dysfunctional economies, actually, if you think about it. Uh, one system cleared up the dysfunction, the other didn't. But I do think we have to leave space open for new growth in terms of new organizations. And we need to leave space open for individuals, honestly, or small teams of people to just buy out and take over large corporate bodies. I would think it's great if there was a move to take a bunch of publicly traded companies and turn them private. Like that might be a great economic development, might actually make the world vastly richer. It, of course, takes untold amounts of capital to do that. And only a few players in the world, organizations or governments can do it. Uh, but I'd find that uh, a very hopeful development. And uh, here's a funny question to end on. If uh, Ozempic continues to work with no side effects and with the other, the other episode, we talked about how plastic surgery is getting you know better and better and cheaper and cheaper. If there is a beauty boon... <laughs> If everyone is able to, to look better, would that lead to a marriage boom or a baby boom or, uh, you know, or no impact? What, what would a beauty boom do to that? I think a beauty boom would produce an increase in fertility. There might be still other factors that push it down. Uh, but I think the hopeful truth of beauty is the following. Um, we do rank in a relative sense who is more or less beautiful but I think it's not exactly a positional good. I think that we are all better off if we are prettier, just as we are all better off if we are all smarter. We have a duty to be as hot as we can be for the future of the human race. So uh, long live Ozempic. <laughs> and um, Samo, this was a great episode. Uh, until next time. Take care, Eric. Looking forward. Thanks for listening to Live Players. Please subscribe, leave a review, and check out Samo's excellent newsletter, The Bismarck Brief, for more rigorous analysis of key individuals, institutions, or industries. Live Players is a production of Turpentine. 
the podcast network behind Econ 102 with Noah Smith and Moment of Zen. Hey everyone, Eric here. At Turpentine, we're building the first media outlet for tech people by tech people. We're the network behind the show you're listening to right now. We have a slate of hit shows across a range of topics and industries, from our AI and investing cluster of podcasts, to shows that drive the conversation in tech with the most interesting thinkers, founders, investors, and influencers, like Econ 102 with Noah Smith. We're launching new shows every week, and we're looking for industry-leading sponsors. If you think that might be you and your company, email me at ericaturpentine.co. That's E-R-I-K at turpentine.co, and let's partner together. 